one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Disinformation and misinformation. How many times have you heard those terms in the past few years? As a phenomenon, it seems to have grown out of all proportion. And now, it really does seem to have become a system of information control. And that we really need to take seriously and understand. Jacob Siegel is a regular columnist at Unheard, as well as senior editor at Tablet Magazine and editor of their daily newsletter, The Scroll. He has just published a special study of disinformation, how we got here, how it works, and what he calls the hoax of the century. He joins us from Israel. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me, Freddie. So disinformation, it's sister misinformation. We hear this all the time. This is, if, if you wanted to draw up a list of the buzzwords of the 2020s, you feel like disinformation would be up there. Your view of it is that it's a little bit more than a buzzword. It's actually something quite sinister, and it's part of a bigger movement that we need to take time to actually understand properly. Tell, where do we start with this? What is disinformation? Yeah, I think we start at what disinformation is, which is really, um, on one level, on one already fairly sinister level, disinformation is a, a means by which the government in cooperation with private tech companies and civil society NGO groups, censors, uh, uses extra legal means to censor political discourse, discourse around issues like COVID vaccinations, lockdowns, the elections. Um, and in the US, really, uh, it's a, a free for all. It's a, a blank check to censor anything. So on one level, disinformation is, you know, ostensibly uh, censorship in order to protect national security. So that's one way to understand it. But I think in a larger sense, that machinery of censorship is not simply, uh, say, opportunistically looking to erase certain things from the public record that are, you know, unflattering to political elites. It's actually rather more than that. It, it is a means of governance. It is a system of power. It is its own. Uh, it, it, it is its own system of power outside of the formal, official in the U.S. constitutional means by which the government is supposed to operate. Disinformation and this what 
is explicitly referred to as the whole of society charter of disinformation. This is a word that comes up repeatedly um, from the government agencies like the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security that were in charge of the counter disinformation efforts continuously refer to it as a whole of society effort, meaning that it has to draw together all of these different organizations and these different um, branches of uh, society, the corporate sector, NGO sector, etc. And in so doing, it essentially places itself above democratic constitutional procedures, clearly above the, the voters and citizens of the country as uh, its own self-legitimating system of power. I mean, somehow in the word itself, there's a clue, isn't there? It's a long word. It's a Latinate word. It, it sounds like a technical term that ordinary people might not be able to understand or decide how it's classified. And that feels carefully chosen, doesn't it? It, it feels like it's a sort of expert-only domain to decide what disinformation is and isn't. Whilst what you're saying is that more and more we're understanding what it really is, which is just opinions and ideas that certain people don't like. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Freddie. I mean, that's exactly right. It's a, a term that in its scientific air and in its opacity um, pretends to a kind of objective taxonomic classification that it comes nowhere close to achieving. You know, it's a, in, in effect a very sort of crude form of propaganda and of censorship, but in a, a way that's, I think, quite typical of the sort of progressive technocratic um, mandate of heaven that the, not just the U.S. Uh, ruling class, but I think, you know, large portions of uh, the EU, you certainly find this in Brussels and you find it in the UK to some extent as well, this sort of pro progressive technocratic faux scientific outlook. I mean, I, I will confess that if I read a document and it starts talking about myths or disinformation, or if you're having a conversation and you hear someone talking about disinformation, I sort of wince and feel like, no, I, I, I don't like the whole concept. Is that where you've reached as well? That we should just be saying no outright to the whole concept of disinformation? Or are there any scenarios in which you think, okay, we should allow the concept to at least continue to exist? Start with the no, and then we can discuss the very rare exceptions. In general, anytime you hear about disinformation, you know, your stomach should turn a bit and you should feel revolted because it is a means of controlling you. And it's an undemocratic uh you know, I've, I've written for Unheard before about the system of secrecy and the ways in which uh, bureaucratic secrecy and especially the secrecy of all powerful intelligence agencies in the U.S. And this is, you know, really a five eyes and a NATO thing. So this is not exclusive to the U.S., but it's most fully developed in the U.S. Bureaucratic national security secrecy is its own shadow system of government. And whenever you hear disinformation, what you're really hearing is the shadow government enforcing its prerogatives in ways that are not subject to the normal procedures and uh, mechanisms of transparency and accountability. Now, the exception to this is in the domain of foreign affairs, which is, and specifically in the domain of espionage, 
which is where disinformation originated in the mid 20th century uh, from the Soviet Union as a, you know, essentially a um, one of many techniques of deception that were really practiced by both sides in the Cold War and that have a place there. Um, and in a functioning democratic polity that carves out certain exceptions for what its national security agencies do. And, you know, obviously the, the military does not abide by the same rules in a strict sense that uh, civilian agencies abide by. And there are very good reasons for that. And you're speaking, I should say, as an ex-soldier yourself. So you, you understand the, the military code of conduct. I do, though, to be clear, you know, I was a, a low-level guy, which is where I was happy to be. So the kinds of things I'm talking about with disinformation were happening at, you know, several levels of reality above um, where I found myself and spent most of my time in the military and infantry battalions where this was just, it never came up. It belonged to a different universe, but I did sort of glimpse it at the margins. And I was certainly, you know, I was certainly affected by the system of secrecy that I'm talking about. That affected me in a very direct way. But I, I make that distinction in part to draw out the fact that in its sort of technical sense, in the way in which, to your early point, earlier point about, are there any circumstances in which we should take this information seriously? Yes. But, but you know, you would never encounter them. I would never encounter them, even as an intelligence officer at the battalion level, at infantry battalions, I wouldn't encounter them um, or I wouldn't knowingly encounter them. Perhaps I would be a target of, you know, uh, foreign states propaganda. But these were very kind of specialized um, tools of espionage. So that would be what? Giving out false coordinates, deliberately putting out, you know, chatter on monitored channels to indicate that a attack would be in one place when actually it would be somewhere else. That's actually disinformation designed to dupe the enemy into, you know, not understanding what your plans are. It's that sort of territory. That sort of territory or, or in a somewhat broader register, you know, you might call that tactical disinformation, uh, battlefield disinformation. In a somewhat broader register, you know, the the Soviet Union, for instance, as one of its active measures campaigns was promoted the conspiracy theory that the AIDS was an invention of the U.S. government. Um, and I don't want to say too much about that because I don't know the details of that story too well. I don't want to botch them. But things like that were not uncommon. The Soviet Union um, would promote stories that were intended to uh discredit the United States. And there's always been a bit of sort of bleeding between strictly battlefield applications and broader political applications. But from the height of the Cold War, you know, I, in the piece I just referenced that I wrote for Unheard about the system of secrecy and, and how that secrecy and the government's own promotion of conspiracies, like the idea that uh, Donald Trump was an agent of Vladimir Putin or Russian stooge, which the U.S. intelligence agencies uh, or elements, very high level elements, the U.S. intelligence agencies promoted. It's not simply that those are wrong or pernicious or that this reflects corruption. They actually drive people crazy. They derange the 
political system. They, they sort of ruin the ability for people to engage sanely and transparently in their own politics. You've kind of touched on some things there which we need to elaborate on, because if we're going to get some sense of the history of this, some sense of how this whole system of classification and censorship of disinformation came into being, the Cold War and the Trump era are two very key periods of history, aren't they? Because that initial sense of paranoia and fear about information and, you know, it takes us all the way back to the Red Scare and Joseph McCarthy. And some of that same atmosphere was rediscovered in the Trump era by his political opponents who sort of, they, they, they started it all up again. Is that, is that how you see the history? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, and the, the great irony or perversity, as you like, uh, is that the people who were most explicitly McCarthyite in the Trump era, who were denouncing people as Russian stooges without evidence, were the kind of liberal standard bearers for whom McCarthyism was supposed to be one of, not was supposed to be, for whom McCarthyism had been one of the great central allegories, moral allegories of political life in America. And this was, you know, it really like at the heart of the kind of liberal catechism in America, this McCarthyite episode. And, um, you know, the lesson that was supposed to have been taken from that was it could happen here in the famous phrase used by Sinclair Lewis as the title of one of his novels, meaning that you know, this the fascism could descend on America in the form of a, a McCarthy character, right? And the people who were most alert to that threat of McCarthyite fascism went on to denounce people willy-nilly as Putinites. Um, the bridge between the Cold War and the Trump era is the war on terror. And the war on terror takes the security bureaucracies of the Cold War that were built during the Cold War and which had already become large and unaccountable and had, um, you know, there were congressional uh, committees and inquiries to deal with their malfeasance and the ways in which they were going around Congress and escaping political oversight. Um, but then after 9-11, they became, not only did they become vastly more powerful, they used the private tech companies as outsourced um, private extra legal firms essentially to carry out the mass surveillance that uh, they wanted to do and continued to do, um, but didn't want to make a privy to congressional oversight. So that sort of intervening episode then, the, the war on terror, Instead of it being, which you might expect, because of the outcome being kind of somewhat disastrous, if one counts Iraq and Afghanistan as part of that, you might think that the effect would be increased skepticism towards this kind of system of state secrets and information management, because so much of the information we were told turned out to be wrong, so many of the plans turned out to not be very well placed. But what you're saying is actually the reverse happened. And during that period, the, the, those powers were entrenched instead of opposed. Both happened at the same time. Both things happened at the same time. Um, so the 
public became more wary, more skeptical of not only the intelligence agencies, but also, you know, the press, uh, Congress, virtually every other institutional center in America, the public became more skeptical of them, while at the same time, those institutions claimed more unaccountable power for themselves. So it's both happened at the same time where the public became more skeptical and that skepticism was then translated or um, read as extremism by these agencies. So as the public became more skeptical, as the public became less willing to simply accept the verdicts delivered by these institutions with a record of failure, uh, the intelligence agencies being one obvious example, um, those agencies then converted that skepticism into markers of extremism that they could use to police the public. So it was a, a kind of doom spiral in that sense. And that really sped up uh, with the arrival of Donald Trump, didn't it? I mean, in a way, what you're describing is when a society ceases to trust itself or where one part of society starts being suspicious about another. And you can enter this sort of doom loop where the, the greater the suspicion, the more the attempts to assert control and dominate the other part need to get. Tell us, bring us forward then to the, to the Trump era culminating in his victory in 2016 and, and the Democrats and I guess the establishment reaction to that. That doom loop just got deeper and deeper, didn't it? It got deeper and deeper. And Trump, because he was such a threatening figure, you know, threatening for reasons that I think were understandable at the time. Um, so the response to Donald Trump was unbelievably damaging. Um, the response being, hey, let's simply delegitimate the uh, Democratic vote. Let's delegitimate the election. This being the response from high-level Democratic Party officials, Hillary Clinton, chief among them. Um, but Trump was a, a strange, wild man who did some um, kind of weird and uh, did things in 2015 and 2016 that caused people real alarm and um, that had the effect of basically pulling together all of the different branches of the U.S. elite. So these branches that might have had implicit affinities, but were not acting in a coordinated way prior to Trump, because Trump was seen as the great unholy, demonic threat to all of civilization brought Wall Street together with Facebook employees, together with the NGOs, together with the CIA and the FBI. And you had this coordinated campaign by the elite institutions in America to delegitimate Donald Trump and the mechanisms that they used for this. You, know, you talked about this tendency towards a kind of tribal factionalism and, and fighting when we lose trust in society. And that can be bad enough. But in this case, what happened was uh, essentially, you know, not all of, but virtually all of the 
federal bureaucracies together with the other elite institutions who control the sense-making apparatus in America, they all got in on this conspiracy. And the conspiracy was to portray Donald Trump as a stooge of Vladimir Putin and to suggest that um, you know his election was illegitimate and that he was one day he was a fascist, the next day he was a Putin agent. They were used sort of interchangeably. And then disinformation entered the picture at the end of Barack Obama's term in office. And the last thing Barack Obama did was to sign uh, through the NDAA, essentially the defense bill, to sign the Countering Foreign Disinformation Act, which uh, created this agency, the Global Engagement Center in the State Department, and fully committed the U.S. political class and the U.S. government to a counter disinformation campaign, which was really always in spirit and very quickly in practice as well, an information war directed against the American people as it had to be. So the word foreign then in the name of that agency was just forgotten about? Or was the, 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 the sort of myth of, and I'm keen to see whether you think it was a myth of, of so much international interference, was that a way to legitimate the surveillance? Or how did the foreign aspect of that get forgotten? It got forgotten because the Russian interference in the 2016 election was grossly, wildly exaggerated. And its effect on the election was always something of a myth. Um, you know, the famous Facebook ads that turned out to be $100,000 in spending that were actually split between ads for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, the infamous troll farms that, uh, you know, nobody could ever prove what effect they actually had that were tweeting ridiculous things like, you know, uh, just just sort of um, cartoonish memes about Hillary Clinton that we were all supposed to take at face value that because there were X number of memes that converted this many voters, but it was all smoke and mirrors. So that, do you think there was, say, just, just to be clear, do you think there was an attempt by Russian actors or the state or whatever to influence the 2016 election via disinformation campaigns? Yes, of course, um, as is the standard in elections. And this wasn't the first time that happened, and uh, and th it's not at all clear that the intent was to help Donald Trump. There's uh, evidence uh, evidence that was excluded from the highly politicized initial intelligence assessment produced by Obama appointee and former CIA director John Brennan in 2017, which uh, became sort of canonical. Uh, even though it was uh, utterly, it was a political document in which claimed that Putin wanted to help Donald Trump. But what what came out later was that contrary theses um, from intelligence professionals, Russian experts inside the U.S. intelligence agencies, who believed based on the classified evidence they had seen that actually. Putin preferred Hillary Clinton because he thought that Trump was a wild man and that he would have an easier time working with Clinton. 
that was excluded from the initial ICA that uh, Brennan oversaw and put out. So did Russia interfere in the U.S. election? Yes. Um, to what effect? We don't know precisely, but it seems to have been fairly negligible. That was certainly Facebook's original assessment. You know, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said, this is absurd, this idea that uh, disinformation on Facebook or what was still at the time called fake news affected the election. We've looked into this in our own private records. We find no evidence of it. This is what Zuckerberg said immediately after the election. And what happens is there's a coordinated pressure campaign from cutouts, organizations that are created to look like objective fact-finding bodies, but which are in fact funded by uh, sort of, you know, what you could either call Democratic Party operatives, ruling ruling party operatives, um, organizations like the International Fact-Checking Network, which is created by Pointer, which is, you know, without getting into all the details, people can look up, uh, look it up and, and see for themselves. But these organizations pretend to be objective, neutral, scientific organizations. And they say, hey, um, actually, A, fake news did cause this, and, and B, we can help you. So you never have this problem again. And that's how they install themselves inside of Facebook as this sort of privatized compliance cadre um, to ensure that there is no more dissent against certain ruling party orthodoxies. So the truth, as you see it, is that, yeah, Russia tried to interfere, probably not very effectively in any direction. Maybe this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. They have a policy of generally trying to sow chaos around the place, and that's part of what they consider to be, uh, you know, effective for their interests. But the effect of that was hugely exaggerated, and it almost became this foundational myth, which allowed the, all of these new organisations to blossom and this much more this clampdown to start really in the years after 2016. It, it was a reaction to that Trump victory. Yeah, but forget about how I see it. Let's look at how Twitter executives saw it, who were privy to, um, you know, some of the initial deliberations about how to deal with so-called Russian deliberate uh, Russian disinformation. So Yoel Roth, for instance, who was um, by no means a Trump supporter, uh, you know, a vocal opponent of Donald Trump, who you know said something along the lines of he was a a fascist in the White House, um, and who uh, Yoel Roth was the Twitter public safety officer in in 2017, um, when he was reviewing the what was called the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which was a supposedly a dashboard tracking Russian influence on Twitter and on social media, which took its funding from the German Marshall Fund, which is in part a project of the US government, and from the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which was an organization started by and staffed by just one high level um, Democratic Party official or uh, intelligence agency official after another, people like Michael Chertoff, Jake Sullivan, uh, now at the National Security Council. So this is, uh, I know I'm, I'm going over a lot here, so let me just uh, remind people. So Hamilton 68 is the name of this very high profile dashboard, as it's called at the time, that is tracking Russian influence on Twitter and on social media. It gets a ton of attention in the press when it debuts in uh, the fall of 2017. It gets write-ups everywhere. And it's as Twitter officials are looking at the back end because Hamilton 68 itself never discloses its list of supposed Russian agents, which it is using to map out this vast conspiracy of Russian influence online. It refuses to disclose that on the grounds that if it discloses it, uh, these Russian operatives will go into hiding. Well, Twitter is able to reverse engineer it because they have access to it on the back end. And there's a series of conversations, and this all comes out from Matt Taibbi's reporting primarily, but from other people's reporting as well through the Twitter files. Absolutely like bombshell stuff that the mainstream press largely just ignores. And it shows that people like Roth are saying, you know, Roth calls it bullshit. He says that the there's no evidence uh, that these people who are being accused of being Russian stooges are actually Russian stooges, that they're being smeared without evidence. And there's an internal conversation about this at the time inside of Twitter. And it's just swept under the rug. So even somebody like Roth, who knows that this is bullshit, calls it that, um, doesn't say anything to the public. So the Hamilton 68 narrative 
which gets picked up and trumpeted by the press, becomes the official narrative. And, you know, that's just one example. You can, people can read the inspector general's report on the origins of the Russia Trump collusion claims for themselves and see what its findings are. And, and it finds not only that there was no evidence of active collusion between the uh, Trump campaign and Russia, but also that the claims of influence were vastly overstated. Um, so again, it's, it's not just me, it's all out there. So take us forward now to the COVID era, because the, the atmosphere you're describing, the seeds were sown already, but it definitely feels like the whole thing fast forwarded and really blossomed during the COVID era. H how do you see that, those years? So you pointed out uh, that there was originally this foreign dimension, and it's in the name of the initial act that Obama passes as one of his last acts in office, countering foreign disinformation. But from the very beginning, that foreign is a, a kind of ruse that's setting up what is actually a much larger, you know, effectively omnidirectional structure because the internet is global that can censor anywhere, but which is in practice focused on the domestic political environment inside the US and specifically on this populist surge, which is taken as an existential threat by the uh, ruling party officials in the US who see populism in, in truly apocalyptic terms. Um, so from the beginning, that's built into it. One more thing that happens very early on, which is really critically important, is on January 7th of 2017, Jet Johnson, who is the um, head of the Department of Homeland Security, passes a measure that declares the electoral infrastructure of the United States critical infrastructure that is going to be federalized and protected by the government. So this happens after he's tried to do this for months. He runs into massive resistance and you can read Johnson's own account. I describe quote Johnson in the piece talking about how when he tried to do this initially, uh, local electoral officials were saying, you can't do this. This is a usurpation of our local uh, sovereignty. So how does he do it? He just, you know, he says, okay, no problem. And then he waits till he's almost out of office and passes this. So now the federal government and specifically Department of Homeland Security has control over the electoral infrastructure in the US. Now COVID, what that means is that because the internet is connected to election integrity, what it means, Freddie, what it means in effect is that this was a kind of coup and that under the pretext of foreign disinformation, a small but very uh, well-organized coterie of political officials declared essentially unilateral power over the entire U.S. political system. That's what it means. And so they did this by, you know, sort of seizing, seizing the commanding heights like the electoral system. And like the social media companies themselves, where the intelligence agencies installed their own teams to monitor, you know, effectively to, to monitor dangerous content and then to push for what they wanted censored. 
So all of this has a political context up until COVID arrives. It goes from foreign to domestic, but it's still in some sense explicitly focused on political threats, um, or if you prefer, you know, foreign threats. Uh, uh, then COVID arrives and it all gets uh, seamlessly, it's applied to COVID, which is described as the infodemic, right? So again, to, to your point about the opacity of these terms and the ways in which they're not, they're ill-defined, they're amorphous, they're, they're simply vehicles for uh, censorious power. And so what was supposed to be focused on foreign disinformation then becomes a means of censoring what is supposedly deadly COVID disinformation, which is, you know, we're told over and over again, is literally killing people. So you have these government-led uh, efforts to censor COVID disinformation. Um, and, you know, you have companies like Facebook, uh, or it's meta, actually, so this would include both, both Facebook and Instagram, bragging about censoring or flagging, you know, downvoting, in some way censoring more than 20 million posts related to COVID disinformation. Now, what does Co and Google is doing the same Including, thing? I've got to add, some of our content. I mean, this is a period I remember well because we were some of the first people in the media to question the lockdowns and ask some difficult questions around what was happening during COVID. And yes, those months in 2020 from you know March onwards, I think have changed a lot of people forever because they had such a surreal atmosphere. And not only was society locked down, but the information flow was locked down. And you had this weird, particularly here in the UK, where the BBC, a national broadcaster, feels particularly like it needs to just toe the government line on, on health issues. But you had all of the main media outlets saying the same thing all the time, just sort of stay at home, stay at home. It felt incredibly dystopian. And I guess that was the moment where the, the organizations, the infrastructure you're talking about, did actually successfully seize the information that we all get. And it's pretty much taken the three years since to start to bust some holes in that. And it's, that, that job is still not complete. But it, those months in 2020 feel like an absolutely central part of this story. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, the greatest mass migration of the modern era is the migration to online affected by the COVID lockdowns, which made people just exponentially more vulnerable to information operations and to uh, programs of information control. You know, if you're living your life online in lockdown, all of a sudden, you know, your senses are no longer regulating your sense of reality in the same way. And that has all kinds of horrible effects. Depression shoots up. Uh, you know, it's it's the ways in which it's bad are, are numerous. But one of them is that it makes people more susceptible to these sorts of campaigns. And it's not just controversial material that's getting um, censored, I, I want to add. It's a totally capricious standard that's defined by the whims of the government and the institutional bodies at any moment. So Google's policy, for instance, which was to flag information, literally they use the word problematic, that's deemed problematic or that goes against 
World Health Organization guidelines or US CDC guidelines at various points includes you could be censored for suggesting that COVID came from a laboratory in China, right? That was, you could be censored. You could be censored for suggesting that uh, masks don't work, right? That masks don't stop transmission. Of course, you could be censored for suggesting that vaccines don't stop transmission. You could be censored for suggesting any number of things that later turned out to be true. And the standard, it's not that science was wrong or that Just to add one, wrong. in my mind, particularly yeah. egregious example, we had a piece that was criticizing the World Health Organization's report into China's handling of COVID as being inadequate because it was carried out in a very short, small number of days and was completely uncritical of the Chinese regime. And of course, the World Health Organization gets a lot of funding from China. This piece came out in Unheard and then was censored by Facebook. So, you know, the tentacles went very far and, and some very, very strange decisions were made during that time. As they were always intended to go, in, in my assessment, uh, as was the plan all along. And, um, you know, it's hard to get into a... It sounds like a a large and um, maybe at this point unsubstantiated assertion, but I think I, I will be able to substantiate it in future work on this. And it's substantiated already to some extent in my essay, uh, A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century. But I would just add that what you're describing is the sort of, you know, the weirdness of the standard that was applied, the incoherence of it is a reflection not of the fact that the authorities got things wrong. It's a reflection of the fundamental intrinsic nature of disinformation, which is not a scientific or an objective category, but which refers in its real sense simply to that which the government or the ruling bodies find inconvenient um, at any time. It's whatever is a challenge to them is disinformation. And you can see that in these wild fluctuations in what counts as disinformation. One day it's disinformation to say that masks work. Another day it's disinformation to say that masks don't work. There's never any accountability. There's never any fundamental revisiting of the mechanisms by which these decisions are made. These decisions are never subject to democratic checks. They're totally opaque. And that's as they're intended to be. Here is what I find depressing, frankly. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you feeling a little bit sad because here is someone who I, I admire and respect and who you are far from a conspiracy theorist, let me say. I mean, what you're talking about, although it, to some people's ears, might sound conspiratorial when you say that this was always the intention, these are, you know, these powers that be networks of organizations, you actually do believe that American society is now so fundamentally divided, it seems to me, that one half of it just cannot trust anything the other half says. So we, we, we seem to be in this really quite sad situation where, you know, some people accuse the other people of conspiracies and then they return with, hey, but you're the real conspiracy theorist because you're doing X, Y, and Z. How do we, where do we go from here? It feels so broken. Yeah, I, this is, uh, I'm much better at uh, describing things than I am at suggesting where we should go. But you're certainly right that temperamentally, not only am I not a conspiracy theorist, I'm not a radical. You know, I'm a pretty moderate 
in some ways, fundamentally a political guy who um, is a kind of sentimental American patriot at heart. And um, those are still my sort of fundamental political instincts, but I don't like being lied to and I won't tolerate lying to myself. Um, so this was a long process for me to arrive at it. It, it didn't happen easily. And, um, you know, it was quite agonizing along the way. But without dwelling on that, I, I would say that there are some structural changes that could be made that I think would address this. So the tech companies are too powerful. And I, you know, I say the tech companies, and I think people understand what I mean is a shorthand, but the, the largest of the kind of big five internet companies are simply too large and too powerful. And they got that way because the government wanted them to get that big in part because it wanted to use them to outsource its surveillance work. And then they got too big and it didn't like that. And much of what we've seen, much of what disinformation is really about is reclaiming control of those companies that suddenly got too powerful at the very moment when populists figured out how to use those platforms. So, you know, I think that we need some kind of system of data rights where rather than you and I having this conversation and 50 different platforms extracting this content using various algorithms and AIs, and then monetizing it and selling it on 30 different markets um, that, you know, we have some kind of say in what happens um, with the data that's extracted from us. And there's some sort of proprietary stamp on it. And this is mm. not simple stuff. No, it sounds, even, I must say, it sounds complicated. I think it, I think it won't be easy, but I think that the current infrastructure of the internet is one that is built on centralization and surveillance. And so we need political changes to force infrastructural changes. Um, and that's one, one place to look, I would say. You don't hear that much about that kind of solution. What you hear more commonly for people who have similar opinions to you and are angry about it is the political solution, which is to take power, basically. Um, and I would say the, the right or Republicans or, you know, the anti-Democrat components, they don't seem to be fueled by a desire to think about the liberal institutions and how we can amend them in order to restore a nice sort of pluralistic society where we all respect outcomes of elections and, you know, agree disagreeably, it feels more like they plan to just take power and seize those same pieces of infrastructure and point them in the direction they want to point them in. You know, it feels like we're into a much more zero-sum battle now. I just wonder, do you have any hope for those, that's what now feels like a bit of an old-fashioned liberal idea, that we could once again have neutral aiming institutions in the short term no i don't have any hope for that becoming a national norm again i think there will there will remain an absolutely vital space and a role to be played by a small number of press outlets and institutions that do what you just described um on the national level um no i don't think so i think that the 
it's not possible to turn some of these institutions, which the precondition for the institutions going along with these deranged and destructive conspiracies, um, Russiagate being sort of the most obvious, but also for going along and acting as enforcement agents for COVID stuff also, uh, the precondition for that was that those institutions had already been hollowed out to some extent, to a considerable extent. Um, in both economic, actually largely economic, not just political terms. And, um, and so I don't think it's possible to recapture, you know, that kind of like mid-century um, functioning civil society that people like you and I still value and, and hold as a kind of ideal. For me, it gets to this central question of whether you think the other guys are evil or not. And a lot of people who agree with you, as well as a lot of people who disagree, have reached the conclusion that basically the other side, whichever it is, are, are bad actors. They are conspiring to take power, to control, or you know, to destroy the good world that we created together, and that they need to be defeated. Um, do you believe that? Do you, do you still, do you think these people populating all of these arcane institutions you've talked about that is now forming the network of the disinformation age, these, are these good people who just think they're doing good things and have just got confused or do you think they're bad people? No, I think they're largely good people who think they're doing good things and got confused. And I'll tell you, like I had a, um, a very, very close friend who I served with in Iraq. We were in the same platoon in Iraq. And when I went, he got out of the army, I stayed in. When I went on another, my second deployment to Afghanistan, he was in Afghanistan working for an NGO and doing, you know, I think admirable work that this is one of the best human beings I know. It's like, I love like a brother. But when I took a hard look at what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan for 20 years, later I determined that one of the things that had happened was these NGOs full of good, well-intentioned people, like my best friend, were drawn into what was essentially a corrupt and losing enterprise. And the only way, not in spite of their best intentions, the only way that enterprise could have been as powerful as it was and could have gone on for as long as it did was by feeding on good, well-intentioned people who believed in it and who perhaps at a local level, sort of in their own foxhole, as we would say, um, could see that they were doing certain things that were good, but the good things they were doing maybe didn't add up to a larger good. And in fact, contributed to what was, uh, you know, a tragic, waste. So I don't think that it's really like half of the country versus the other half. That's not how I see it. I think that there's a very small, real core power elite uh, ruling party in America, and that their great success and their great wickedness, in a sense, has been to use information operations and control over the narrative organs of society to convince millions of people to join in their cause by making that cause a, sor a source of primary identity, the resistance, as it were. 
I'm going to leave it there on that note because although it's a little bit of a little bit of a depressing one, I feel like there was a there was a hopeful turn at the end of what you said there that we we shouldn't maybe if each of us fails to view the opponent in quite such a kind of black and white manichaean enemy friend way, we can each begin to get back to something a little bit more normal. Sounds good to me. Jacob, thank you so much. Um, and to those people who want to read your piece, it is up at Tablet. Also, your articles at Unheard. We'll put links to them in the bottom. Thank you for joining us today, Jake Siegel. Thanks for having me, Freddie. That was Jacob Siegel, sometimes read here at Unheard, otherwise at Tablet magazine, where he is senior editor. Thanks to him for his time. We were looking there at this information, this weird concept that you now hear all the time, and that I think he is taking suitably seriously, for it seems to be at the heart of the whole information exchange and where we can and can't trust what we hear. So thank you to him. Thanks to you for joining. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.